Welcome to the Appropriation of Sage podcast about felons. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show with your hosts, Rihanna, Daniela, Darian, and Deanny. Thank you for that intro, Daniela. So to discuss the history of felons in the United States, um, the United States actually represents 4.4% of the world's population. However, we house 22% of the world's prisoners. So actually, London is known as the birthplace of modern imprisonment. A philosopher by the name of Jeremy Bentham was against the death penalty, so he created the concept for a prison. This would be used to hold prisoners for any form of punishment. Historically, people who were found guilty of various crimes would be forced to do hard labor while they were incarcerated and to live in very harsh conditions. Before long, one of the goals of prison sentence became the rehabilitation of inmates. Some examples of rehabilitation include mental examinations, educational program, and even back in the day, sometimes it included electroshock therapy. However, in America, Terrell Don Hudo, I hope I pronounced his name right, who actually was a previous pastor is one of the co-founders of Corrections Corporation of America, also known as CCA. And he is accredited with learning how to run a prison as a business. He learned how to think about prison as a money-making venture. And any corners, he always said, any corners could always be cut to serve as the bottom line. So for years after the um, ending of slavery, um, enslaved people continue to be imprisoned in the South and were used for free labor. Like private prisons today, profit rather than rehabilitation was the guiding principle, sorry about that, of early prison systems throughout the South, specifically in the South. It's important to note note that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery except as a punishment for a crime. I have a quote that states, as long as black men were convicted of crimes, Texas could lease all of its prisoners to private cotton and sugar plantations and companies running lumber camps and coal mines and building railroads. It did this for five decades after the abolition of slavery. But the state eventually became jealous of the revenue. So between 1899 and 1918, the state brought 10 of its own plantations and began running them as prison. The state of Texas did this. Prison privatization accelerated after the Civil War. The number of inmates then accelerated after the 1994 crime bill that fed the mass incarceration crisis. Companies like using convicts in part because, unlike free workers, they could be driven by torture. This drive for torture and profit has created the system that we know as the prison complex system. The imprisonment of felons continues to be one of the most common forms of punishment. In America in 2004, the prison population was 2,306,200, which is a 700 increase since the 1970s. So, Danny, I just wanted to comment on something that you had mentioned um, about you know, this whole prison system starting from slavery, um, as we kind of learned about from uh, watching the 13th documentary, um, 
we learned that this was basically a system that was purposely created because slavery was now all of a sudden, you know, not legal anymore, right? So um, in order to maintain the labor that they were getting and um, still keep Black people separated, um, you know, they created this prison system so that they're able to legally, you know, continue slavery. Um, So I just thought that that was an interesting point that you mentioned. And then also, um, I don't know if anyone else wanted to say anything, but I just wanted to mention that um, we also learned about like the pig's law and how, um, you know, they were kind of basically targeting black, black people. Um, I think it was black men um, just saying that they were stealing, stealing their cattle and, you know, um, you know, just kind of finding any minor way to target them and then place them in prison again for that labor purpose. And then it was also just an easier way to like ha- constantly have replacement black people because they could go out and find, you know, um, plenty of other black people to bring back into the prison sy- prison system and just um, have them, you know, do the labor for them. So um, thank you for sharing that. When when you mentioned that, what what I thought of was just how it almost seems like every so often we just reinvent the wheel on different ways of incarcerating black and brown men, yeah. and particularly men in America. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah. See, that was perfectly said. And I was thinking that too. Sorry to cut you off, Darian. But um, literally every law, I feel like it's just okay, let's see how we could corrupt, like, this group. That's just how I felt when you were reading Mm -hmm. um, or telling us all about those facts. I found, in particular, um, interesting was how they used to use, like, electroshock therapy, educational programs, and mental examinations towards um, the felonies. Because I feel like even though maybe electric shock doesn't happen, there's still stuff that gets swept under the rug for felons Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that happen in prisons today and it happens every day. You know, you hear about how child sex offenders Mm -hmm. basically get raped. Mm -hmm. Like they don't get treated nice in prison. So Mm -hmm. I feel like it's still a continuous cycle, but it's not, you know, people running the prisons that are giving them that it's their own inmates. So there's still a cycle going of how these people are being treated, like felons in general. Mm -hmm. I agree. Thanks, Danny, for talking about the history of a felon. So I just kind of want to jump into the oppression um, about felons and what they're kind of going through today. Uh, On one website, it's called like the Sentence Project, I believe sentencing project and they talk about how many voters are affected throughout the whole um (laughs) disenfranchisement um there's only which i found interesting only two states in all 50 states that have no restrictions towards voting and they're maine and vermont otherwise the rest of the states if you're in prison you're not allowed to vote and they're saying that it contributes to a racial divide paralyzing our country because there's statistically a huge more amount of black and brown men in prison versus white men in prison. What's up? Can I say that something to that? Um, 
I know you just started, but I um, actually yeah, listened to a podcast that was kind of discussing this, and um, it was talking about, like, you know, you mentioned, like, Black and brown men being imprisoned and stuff, um, and then, you know, a lot of these men are fathers, right? So then their parental rights are being taken away from them, too, because now, you know, once they get out of prison, um, they're felons. So then it makes it difficult for them to, you know, they miss all this time in their children's lives, but then also, like, they may not have the right to be in their children's lives for the reason that they were felons, right? So um, I just wanted to mention that. And I just think that it's unfair that, you know, there they, there's a system put in place where people get to decide whether or not, you know, these people that they consider felons are fit to be um, parents. So I just wanted to add that. Thank you. But no, I, I agree. I, I feel like felons since they've been through the system i think their vote would really make the the most difference out of all of us you know and i saw something saying most of them are in the so 75 percent of the disenfranchised voters they're in the community and not behind bars so imagine if that many more people were able to vote how different our elections would end up and there's one statistic I found on the Sentencing Project organization website, and I just, I thought this was like bone chilling to me. It says one of every 16 African Americans have lost their voting rights due to felony disenfranchisement laws versus one in every 59 non-Black voters. Not even close. That's what, almost three times? It's a lot. It's, it's a lot, yeah. <laughs> Anyone? Anyone else? That's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then who's next? Um, Danny, right? Mm-hmm. I think you're muted, Danny. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was saying I want to pick up one of her points, like one of her bullets, and then um, go from there. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Ready when you are. I am ready. So, uh, Brianna, I love that you brought up um, a really despicable statistic, which is just there are over 6 million Americans right now who cannot vote because of having a felony conviction on their record. And Mm -hmm. to think about 6 million people that don't have the opportunity to have their voices heard for an indiscretion that could have occurred, uh, you know, decades ago is really uh, reprehensible, like irreprehensible. It's not something that uh, in a modern society we should be okay with. And I think we should be looking more into the opportunities of reestablishing those rights. And I think that a lot of people in 2020 are dedicating themselves to restoring rights for felons. There's a lot of legislation going on to protect these people that have served, they have committed crimes, but they have served their time and they're trying to start a life over. Um, Even going as far as um, Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg, who, you know, at one time was running for presidential office, he offered up uh, over $16 million of his own money to go towards um, payments that would go to being repaid to the state of Florida because Florida was holding on to the voting rights of felons due to um, finances that they could not afford to pay off. And due to those debts, 
they were not allowed the opportunity to be an American to uh, exercise their right to vote. Now, um, separating from voting, we have opportunities of just having that career. We have firefighters who uh, were trained just the way felon firefighters have been trained, equal experience, equal strength, equal dedication to their craft. But unfortunately, felon firefighters are not given the same opportunity once they exit those hallowed halls, once they exit the facility, they're no longer given that opportunity to be on the straight and narrow and have a career path. So, Danielle, I think that's a great point because even for employment opportunities, I know you were saying about the firefighters, but think about it. Like after so many people fall back into the system because they can't get employed, they have a felony, even if it's a minor one, you know, like you have this label on you, which is crazy. And I want to go back to one of the points you were making about the voting with Mayor Bloomberg. So in New Jersey, it prohibits if you're in prison um, on parole or probation to vote. But in New York, it only prohibits those who are in prison or on parole. But in some states, even if you served your sentence, you still can't vote. Mm -hmm. Like that's it. Once you're in prison, you're done. You can't vote ever again. And I think we have to look at the big picture of that, because if we already know they're targeting this population, they're targeting this specific group of people, what are they trying to do? They're trying to limit the voice to affect change of a specific population for their eternity. So uh, we have Assembly Bill number 2147, which is, you know, exercising that opportunity where felon firefighters can sit and become EMTs, which is the one distinguishing feature of a felon firefighter from a standard firefighter in California. And as you know, like California constantly battles uh, wildfires and they are in desperate need of people that are trained and that know how to do that job and limiting the opportunity for people to serve their nation as well as better themselves just because of an indiscretion that occurred that they paid for is just something that as a humanitarian, I just can't support. It doesn't support the betterment of man. And I think that um, going forward, we're going to see more bills like this, just like with reclassifying drug possession. Uh, There's so much movement right now to Um, alter, reclassify drug possessions, and it's going to have retroactive effects. So people that have been incarcerated that have these charges that are affecting their day-to-day are no longer or may have a better opportunity of a tomorrow because their charges may be um, classified differently and it could give them an opportunity for a better tomorrow. And legislation with that is, is important. Um, Before you move on, I just wanted to um, say something to some of the points that you guys were both making. Um, So voting, especially right now, like I think voting is kind of being promoted a lot um, during this time. And so, you know, you know, just because somebody committed a crime, you know, at some point in their life, like it doesn't mean that they're not a person who lives in this country. Right. So like just to take that right away from them, along with many of their other civil rights. So this is not the only thing that they're missing out on if they, you know, get sent to prison. Um, So like, they're not allowed to serve on a jury, um, not allowed to travel abroad, um, owning firearms. And then you guys mentioned like employment opportunities. So like these people, and I'll go further into it later on, but like people who are, you know, were convicted of a felony, 
it's hard, way harder for them to get a job if they, you know, even can get a job. Um, so like, you know, and I had mentioned like parental rights and then there's like housing, you know, it's harder to get loans because like, oh, you were a felon, like we're not going to loan you money, you know, stuff like that. So there's like this, this, um, it's like a, a black cloud over their head, you know, they step out of prison, right? And you think life is all good, but not really. You're not ever going to get back to the life that you once had because you're seen in a different in a different way. So like you're not given the fair opportunities that, you know, you should be as a human being, like you're being deprived of many of the rights that you should have. Exactly. It's a cycle. It's a vicious cycle. And I I appreciate that you brought up the uh, traveling abroad. It's something that you don't think of very often when you think of restrictions with felons. But uh, here you have where you can't leave the country. There's no opportunity for you to travel abroad. And you're stuck in a country that does not want to accept you. They don't want to reform you. They don't want to give you the opportunity to alter your life. You have a life sentence, mm -hmm. whether mm -hmm. you were sentenced to life in prison or life outside of prison, you are forever altered by the choices that you have made. And I think I it's interesting, I'm so sorry, Daniela, to cut you off. I think it's interesting, the topic that we're talking about, right? Because since black and brown men are disproportionately targeted, um, we learned in I don't know if you guys remember in at the Baltimore police officers wouldn't investigate. And so many black and brown men were wrongly, were wrongly convicted. And so not only were they wrongly convicted, this means they lost all these rights without even having really committed a crime. Mm -hmm. um, and then you mentioned Daniela that a lot of these, um, a lot of felons um, end up working for free or cheap labor mm -hmm. for a lot of private companies, private companies that a lot of us benefit from McDonald's, Walmart, Starbucks, Sprint, Verizon. So to think that these, that these jobs can, can benefit from free or cheap labor, but then not offer them positions once they're out really seems like, like we need to write to legislation for like it's incentivized, like it's it's great purpose. It's modern slavery. I think that being a felon today is the equivalent of modern slavery. That's enhanced by corporations Absolutely. because they're incentivized for cheap production, cheap salaries, cheap uh, everything. It's efficient. They don't have to worry about it. There's no HR to complain to. Mm -hmm. Well, hundred and ten percent. America found a way to 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 go through the the one loophole that exists in the 13th amendment that you know we can get labor for free or cheap or whatever when a crime has been committed right they literally found the loophole well they created it and then they benefit from it well that's the whole thing i think that all these laws are custom built to uh attack certain groups of people and it's the people that don't have the opportunity to fight for themselves or have advocates that have the opportunity or have the support or have the financial backing mm -hmm. to defend these legislations. Like there's money behind this. And where does that money come from? It comes from a point of historical abuse of minority populations. And that's exactly what we see, just a modernized version of that with um, felony corporatizing uh, prisons. We even saw that in the 13th documentaries. Um, I forget what the percentage was, but they were saying so many people in prison aren't, shouldn't be in prison just because they couldn't like pay out their bail for a crime they didn't commit. And now they're serving years behind bars 
God only knows what mental like force is being on them, the health that's going through them. Like it's just a domino effect for something they didn't even do, but can't afford to pay bail of like, mm-hmm. and they got targeted. It's just terrible. Yeah. Yeah. This, this makes me think of the Khalif Browder story. Thank you. I couldn't think of his name. That's <laughs> what his name was. Yes. Yeah. They, they accused him of, what is it? Stealing a, a, a book bag. And it seems, I, I don't think he did it in the end, but he spent so much time in Rikers Island. And then once mm-hmm. he came out, I guess everything he experienced there, he committed, he completed um, suicide. Yes. Um, wasn't it like he was waiting three years for a hearing or something? It was, it was crazy. And he spent a lot of, lot of time in solitary confinement. Yes. Yeah. I remember he was getting into fights and stuff. It, it was really bad. Yeah. And I wanted to go, um, I forget who mentioned about employment opportunity, but I actually worked with someone who was on that Birdie Madoff case um, when I used to work at Nike like a few years ago. And he was one of the best workers I've ever worked with. Like he was a hard worker, so underpaid, like we made a little over minimum wage. But he was always knew his stuff, always working on tasks. And I didn't realize he was part of the whole Bernie Madoff scandal until one of my managers told me after he moved, I think, to Seattle. He was like, wait, you didn't realize Eric, like, (laughs) was part of that whole thing? It's like, no. And you can just Google his name and all, like, pictures of him come up. And I was like, I didn't know that. He's like, a lot of people judged him because of that. It was like, I, and it's horrible because, like, you think he's doing a good job. He got out of jail, like, um, was cooperative so he could be in his daughter's lives and his wife's life. Like, it's just terrible. That's how he got treated. Uh,. <laughs> Okay, so how do we want to transition here? So we're going. Uh, we're talking about legislation next, right? Yeah, I think it's. No, it's it's you with no, I legislation. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. I my bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tripping. Okay, so but you can pick one of the op- many obstacles we talked about and jump in. Okay. All right. All right. So, well, I'm gonna go with my quote. So there was a. Thank you guys for all the amazing points that you made. Um, (laughs) so during, you know, during my research, I came across a study that was done in July of 2018. Um, and something that they had mentioned was that, um, formerly incarcerated people are unemployed at a rate of 27% higher than the total U S unemployment rate, um, during any historical period, but including the great depression. And so like, we know that the Great Depression left people with a lot of people with no jobs, many of the people with no jobs. So, like, just to kind of compare that, like, felons, the group of felons, you know, are more unemployed than the people in the United States during the Great Depression. So that was just something that I was, you know, shocked by when I was um, reading. So, yeah, I'm just going to talk about 
you know, the obstacles are, you know, how felons have overcome the obstacles that they face. So when I first read this question, I was, you know, puzzled because I'm like, um, you know, felons haven't really overcome being felons, you know, they come out of jail and they continue to struggle way worse than they were before they were, you know, put into jail. So um, I wanted to look up the term overcome just because I was like, maybe I'm misunderstanding it. So when I did, it just kind of said basically that overcome means to succeed in dealing with a problem. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the problem is now all of a sudden gone. It just means that the group of people or the individual has succeeded in dealing with the problem. So that kind of helped me to better understand like, okay, this doesn't mean that felons, once they get out of jail, now the problem's gone. Like, no, it just means that, you know, I guess basically the question is asking like, what are some ways that felons have dealt with the obstacles, especially once they come out of jail? I kind of mentioned a few things like, you know, their voting rights, serving on a jury, um, housing, you know, these people come out and they don't have anybody, right? So then they're struggling with that financially, just, you know, everything is kind of all over the place for them. Um, so then during my research, I came across something called the Fair Chance Act of 2019. Um, but there have also previous to this been fair chance laws implemented in different states. Um, so yeah, it's like our ban the box. So basically when um, anybody is applying for a job, there's always that box that says, like, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And, you know, for felons, that's that's a tough choice. They either choose to tell the truth and accept that, yeah, I'm not going to get this job, or they, you know, tell a lie, and then the background check proves them to be a liar. And then, you know, the employer is like, this is why we don't hire people like you. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, so there are just states that have implemented basically getting rid of that box. Um, that they have to check off. And um, yeah, so the Fair Chance Act basically just goes into like, um, for employers, they shouldn't like, um, sorry, <laughs> they shouldn't have that box there. They shouldn't be doing the background checks unless they are planning on offering employment to the person, then they can do their background check. And so this is kind of a win for felons in a way, because a slight win because there are so many other things that are going wrong for them, but um, it gives them a better chance of getting employed because the employer is not first looking at like, oh, you committed a crime however many years, months, whatever ago. They're looking at, are you qualified for the position? Then looking into their background and, you know, still they could see that afterwards and be like, oh, you're a felon, sorry, we're not going to hire you. But at least their first looking you know their first look is not what their criminal background is if that makes sense um yeah it's like you don't you don't walk into the door you know you're all dressed up with a suit and then you have a big sticker on your forehead that says i'm a felon because the minute they see that in your application it it erases all your resume and it just leaves them with a criminal you're you're a deviant you've done something terrible and i shouldn't allow you in this establishment you said that really well with the obstacle space and it's not that they get to overcome. Right, they just right. have to dodge different obstacles once they're out in a different location. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially all that is. Yeah. And we were kind of talking about like, just like the voting rights um, and everything like that. So like, if you happen to be in a state where you're just not allowed your basic right to vote, you know what I mean? Then that's just 
that's bad luck on your part, I guess. Um, because like, if you, if you live somewhere where you're allowed to vote and you are a felon, then it doesn't really affect you as much as it would if you would live somewhere else. Right. So like geography also plays a big part in this too. Um, but I think that like the process of felons overcoming the obstacles that they're facing, it, it's happening very, very slowly, but surely it's not as quickly as we would want for it to be. Like, it's kind of like common sense for us, like just let them do their time, get out and, you know, get back to normal life. But like, I feel like America is just so big on like, we need to punish people who do wrong. And, um, you know, so then it doesn't really, people are always talking about the American dream, right? So you, you are entitled to the American dream if you're a part of certain groups, but also if you have, you know, are following exactly what you should be following to be an American. So like, if you step out of that box, then all of a sudden you're deprived of every right. And yeah. And then I also thought about like people who are wrongfully um, convicted of, you know, felonies um, and just how unfair that is for them because, and I actually personally know someone who was wrongfully convicted of a felony and um, it was just like the evidence was against her. She either would plead guilty or do jail time. So pleading guilty meant like she would struggle with job opportunities and she had to check off that box. Like, have you ever been convicted of a felony? You know, she had to check all those things off even though she was wrongfully convicted, right? So then, you know, it's just an unfair opportunity or not opportunity, it's an unfair um, punishment for her when she really didn't do anything. So um, I think that there definitely needs to be a lot of reform in this system for people who are, you know, especially those who are wrongfully convicted, but also like, if you did your time, I just feel like you should, through different systems, you should just be able to like reenter society um, and we actually talked about that in class recently, like, you know, other countries, they have their prison systems where, with the intention of re-entering their felons into society, right? But and here, yeah, you see that in the quality of what they're eating and how they're treating their prison, like their felons or what would you call them, their inmates, you see that represented exactly how they treat them. And the way we treat our inmates when they're inside the system is exactly how we view them when mm -hmm. they leave. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And lower than human. They're not given food that no, like a regular person on a standard day would ever consider eating. Meanwhile, like countries that are rehabilitating their citizens, you could see that investment. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you brought up. So to, to further this, I think when I think about reform, right, um, we've had a conversation about this before. I think of um, starting the process way before they leave the prison system so that they can be prepared and have, um, you know, kind of like this outline as to what to do. Because think about it. For someone that's been in prison for, let's say, five years, who's had all this structure of other humans telling you when to go out and play, one to pick up a book, you know, mm -hmm. it might be difficult to transition and not and no longer have that structure, right? Um, so if they have a, a goal plan um, and other, um, I don't want to say systems, but other rehabilitation services, um, reentry programs, educational programs, 
um, programs that'll help them create a, a resume um, that'll teach them, you know, different ways of, of um, re-entering into, into the community after so long from, you know, being out, I think would be would be great. But, you know, when I think about this, I think there's so many barriers to it just because of the way the system prison, the prison system complex is all systems in America are. I think um, we would have to really shift the way we look at um, at people, right? Like uh, Daniela said, we would have to look at people like humans. Um, and I think that's a part of, of why this continues, but hopefully we could see some reform sooner than later. I think implementing courses is a great idea. Danny, um, I know one of my professors when I was doing my undergraduate at Rowan, she actually used to teach in the prison system and she would always say how hardworking they, the inmates were. She goes, they wanted to learn. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they also, you know, don't really have a lot to do, but she said like they were always willing to learn, always have papers in. They were like, probably like her hardest working students versus the kids that are paying thousands of dollars each semester to earn a degree. So I think implementing programs of what it's like to be back into society or, you know, even basic um, interviewing skills or how to fill out an application. I feel like that would go so far just even as a first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, to add to that, um, I just think that, like you were talking about, like, you know, interview skills and um, ap- applying and stuff like that. I think, like, a program that would kind of, like, specifically meant to, like, mock real-life situations that, you know, if there's, like, a center for it and they just kind of have, like, okay, this is the interview sec- center and you, you know, take a class to prepare. Like, this is how you take, like, even if it's, like, a quick, like, I don't know, one-week class or whatever, just, like, where you practice these skills and then you kind of put them into the real world and they're doing like mock interviews or like, you know, different real world, like situations that they might encounter. And then also I just, as you guys were talking about that, I thought of like, what if they were in prison for a really long time and there's like simple updates, like technology updates or like, you know, different or new laws that they didn't know about. Right. You know, stuff like that, just educating them and preparing them to come back into the real world with the intention that they're going to be, you know, equal to everybody else without having to continually struggle. Like they already did their time in prison. So like prepare them to do better in society. Like they did their punishment, right? They did what they had to do. Now they deserve the chance to, you know, redeem themselves, I guess, in a way and just, you know, become active members of society. Exactly. That's a really good point about the technology. Oh, sorry, Daniela. But that's the whole purpose, right? They were told you need to pay with your time for 15, 20 years because you need that time to self-evaluate, whatever it may be. Like you need to serve your time to the nation in this facility. But there's no outcome for them. Like what's what's the outlook for opportunity? Like once they they did what they were told. They followed directions. So why aren't we rewarding these people? Why aren't we acknowledging that they're still humans? Why are we demoting them to subpar after they do exactly what we told them they needed to do? Right. It doesn't make sense. I agree. And going back to technology, think about someone who got locked up in the 80s or 90s 
and now served like a 35 year, 40 year sentence, whatever. There wasn't any smartphones back then. So how are they going to adjust to this whole new way of life with social media, everything Mm -hmm. being tech, technical, like Mm -hmm. there's such a huge culture shock from a few decades ago. We've even 10 years ago, like, yeah, oh, smartphones yeah. were there, but we didn't solely rely on them. And it's only so, advancing more quickly now, you know what I mean? So Yes. And come on, you know there's no phones in prisons unless they're magically snuck in. So that's just a huge, another huge disadvantage that they'll have to go through. Absolutely. And I think the other thing with that is that we see that there's not worth there. There's not reason to dedicate financing to for decades at a time or staying relevant to technological updates and things like that to make them relevant to the workforce. Because why bother? Why would we spend money on these people that we don't care about, that we don't care what happens to them when they get out? Because we don't care what happens to them when they're in there or why they're in there. There's no reasoning mm-hmm. for that. So why would we ever give them iPads? Why would we <laughs> why would we do anything to that nature, to that respect? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um thank you everybody for sharing. Um I think we yeah, we did we did pretty well discussing. Um we learned a lot for sure about, you know, the mistreatment of this group. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, there, this is not the only group of people who are oppressed in America. Like this is, this is just one small, you know, group of people who are facing challenges in America. So, um, yeah, thank you everybody for listening to the podcast. Um, and I just, we just want to let you guys know, please recognize your privilege burn some sage, and be a better person.